do you go from an idea to influence to income? Often we only ever hear about the two polarities, right? We hear about people who have got a great idea, who put a lot of time and effort into building their influence with very little results. And then there's the multimillionaires who are living in a New York loft apartment, always a loft apartment, don't know why, who just last week were living in their parents' basement, but then they discovered this killer system. And now they're stood in front of a Harley Davidson with fireworks coming out of their head and cash literally raining at their feet. So what does it take to actually build a business as an influencer? Previous stories, always not true, by the way. Or what does it take to build a business by becoming an influencer? My name is Julie Masters and you're listening to the Inside Influence Podcast, where I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers to get to the bottom of what it actually takes to own your voice, claim your influence, and then amplify it. My next guest is Dori Clark, author of the groundbreaking book Stand Out, where she first came to my attention. It was named the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine, one of the top 10 business books of the year by Forbes, and a Washington Post bestseller. Random fact also, she is the former presidential campaign spokeswoman and also producer of a multi-Grammy winning jazz album, just in case you're a jazz fan. She's also recently just published a new book, which is what brought us to talk this time. It's called Entrepreneurial You, and I would urge you to go out and get it. I don't say that often, but believe me, in all my years of doing this, it's rare that anyone actually talks about the grassroots tactics of what it takes to build a business as an influencer. We talk about ideas, we talk about results, but we very rarely talk about what to actually do on a daily basis. In this episode, we discuss how to find your breakthrough idea, how to find that idea that's going to cut through the noise. We discuss the keys to building a following when starting from scratch, why most success stories you see on Facebook aren't true, see previous point, what the rise of the influencer means for the career of the future, and why fear plus 10% is the magic number when it comes to turning your expertise into income. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Dory Clark. So welcome to the podcast, Dory Clark. Hey, Julie, thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. We were literally saying, I was saying recently that, you know, I read your book this week, Entrepreneurial You, which is incredible. And I was laughing thinking, if I'd have had this 20 years ago, I probably wouldn't have made the reams of mistakes that I made in my career in terms of building thought leaders and developing thought leadership. So thank you for it. Just a little bit, you know, if you could have done it 20 years ago, I would have appreciated it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I wasn't able to oblige with that, but but I'm glad that, that you still enjoyed it today. I, I really did. I really did. And, and we were having the discussion that it's rare for people to talk about this subject in a practical way. You know, often you see people talk about it in a, I made $5 million in three weeks online, or, you know, suddenly I'm speaking a hundred times a year and earning X amount of money. And you hear those stories, but it's very rare that you hear the practical steps and the time and the strategy that it takes to get there. And I haven't seen a book that covers it in that way, quite honestly, in, in a couple of decades. So I'm really excited to jump into it with you today. Thank you. That's that's great. I really appreciate it. And that it really was my goal because I, I wanted to demystify things. The story, our culture seems to only tell the the sort of post-facto success story where it seems like it's either someone has just always been successful or if we do see a progression, it's just, oh, well, they were an overnight success and just amazing things happened, you know, snap the fingers. And of course, we know that's not true. There's a process. There's things that people do. And I wanted to really try to break that down and understand, well, what are those things? Because it can be a replicable process. You just have to pull back the curtain and be be transparent with people about that. And so I was really excited to be able to create something that could kind of serve as a roadmap for regular professionals and regular entrepreneurs so that they could look at their business and say, well, which of these things might work for me? And it was always a frustration of mine when you hear people talk about their success and being someone that's behind the scenes making it happen. The frustration was always, but th that took years and I know what that took and I know all the decisions, I know how hard you worked and to talk about it as if it just suddenly arrived one day. It sounds good, but it doesn't do any justice to the person that you're talking to, but it also doesn't do any justice to the journey that you went on 
to get here. So yeah, that's right. All right, let's let's jump in. I'm going to start with the first question that I always ask, which is, do you consider yourself to be an introvert or do you consider yourself to be an extrovert? Quick, quick background if someone's listening that hasn't heard me ask that question before. I feel like there's a bit of a story, a bit of a myth that in order to be influential, in order to own my voice, in order to stand out, I have to be an extrovert. And if I'm not, I just stay small, I stay quiet. So I'm trying to bust it. Tell me, introvert or extrovert? I'm definitely an introvert. And uh, for folks who are interested, if they're wanting to like ride the introvert bandwagon, I actually did a couple of pieces for the Harvard Business Review that folks can find pretty easily by Googling. One is called personal branding for introverts and another is called networking for introverts. So I have my little miniature manifestos about it. Oh, you've literally written the handbook to being an introvert and standing out. Love it. Okay, (laughs) go go in. That was a brilliant answer. Go and check it out if you're an introvert. All right, let's jump straight in. In order to go forwards, I just want to go backwards a second. So it wasn't the first book that you wrote, but a book that you wrote called Stand Out, which again, I bought, I loved. Um, It's pretty much when I started following your work. I loved it because the number one question that I get asked is, how do I find my thing? You know, how do I find this one idea, this one patch, this patch of turf that I can own that's going to make me stand apart in a crowd, or in your words, my breakthrough idea. And again, you just really broke that down. So can you talk a little bit about what a breakthrough idea is? And then you also said something about originality being overrated, which I loved. If you could delve a little bit into that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll actually start there and, and work backwards. Um, but one of the people that I interviewed for Standout was a guy named Des Dearlove, who, in collaboration with his partner, Stuart Craner, runs something called Thinkers 50, which is every two years they have this big conference and they do a biennial ranking of the world's top management thinkers. So they're more keenly attuned to the world of business thought leadership than just about anyone. And that, that was actually a, a quote from him that, you know, I was asking him, well, like, okay, you're sort of the, the czar of thought leaders. What makes for a thought leader? You know, how, how does somebody break through? And he said, you know what? Originality is overrated, which is almost a shocking thing to come from somebody like that. But the truth is, if we actually think about it, some of the people, you know, if you were just kind of asking regular people, regular business people who followed this a little bit, well, you know, who's a business thinker that you admire? You might hear somebody like Malcolm Gladwell, who of course has written a number of business books, or uh, maybe Daniel Goleman, who wrote Emotional Intelligence. And, you know, that was a huge bestseller in the 1990s. All of these people, they're synthesizers, you know? I mean, Malcolm Gladwell, for instance, is, uh, or, you know, Daniel Pink, you know, they're not doing original research. That's, you know, they're not, they're not out there in the psychology lab doing this. Malcolm Gladwell is a journalist. So was Daniel Goleman. Dan Pink actually got his start as a speech writer, a political speech writer, uh, but has essentially become a de facto journalist. And what they're really good at is bringing together ideas and creating a synthesis that just shows in an interesting way, you know, a new way to look at the research. And so it's not so much about having to do the, the research yourself. It's really about something that anyone can do, which is spotting a strand of an interesting idea that is not getting the press that it deserves. Anyone can attune themselves to to be familiar enough with their field and their industry to say, you know, wait a minute, this thing over here is kind of cool, but not enough people are talking about it. What if we shone more of a light on that? And by doing that, that actually enables you to, in many ways, claim your own turf as a thought leader. You use the language, look for a little disturbance in the force field. That's right. Which, that's right. Which I which I really enjoyed as a as a term, and I think that what you were saying about being a synthesizer is important because one of the the greatest things that I see with thought leaders, those that stand out, is they become a translator. So they almost become the translator of their field, where they have their target market that they want to talk to. They go out onto the fringes, find lots of different ideas, lots of different pieces of research. They don't necessarily do that research. But they come back and they overlay it all and go, right, this is what you need to know. Here are my insights. Here's how I would translate this for you in your world so you don't have to do that work. And those are the people other people tend to follow. Yeah, absolutely. If you have the ability to take the complex and turn it into something that is 
simple, by which, you know, we don't mean dumbed down. We just mean stripped of all excess, then that is a tremendously valuable skill. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience in finding your own breakthrough idea? So you started out as a presidential campaign advisor, which by itself would have been, you know, a crash test in, you know, personal branding and thought leadership. Can you tell me how you went from there to where you are now? Yeah, thank you. Um, My time in politics was really illustrative because in in a lot of ways, that's exactly what it is. You are, uh, I did press on campaigns and so you are managing the brand in a very high stakes way of a candidate that is not only trying to get his or her message out to supporters, but also simultaneously trying to deflect the missiles that the opposition is shooting at you. So having that background was extremely helpful in shaping my my thought process about how regular professionals who hopefully <laughs> don't have uh, don't have opponents shooting missiles at them uh, can uh, can fare in terms of kind of breaking through in a crowded environment but I would say that is the interpretation looking backward like Steve Jobs's famous uh, Stanford commencement speech you can only connect the dots looking back you can't really do it uh, looking forward wouldn't Otherwise, it be great if you could it would be so great, but yeah, we're 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 just stymied as humans. But in in the moment, you know, I started. So I worked in politics, and uh, ultimately, I, I launched my business doing what I do now. You know, marketing, strategy, consulting, and writing, and speaking, and teaching, and all that in 2006. And when I started, I got advice from a lot of people that I I needed to niche down. That that was that was the secret. Like, well, who's your ideal client? You need to niche down. You need to say, well, I do uh, communications consulting for angel stage startups, or I only do uh, executive coaching for C level people, or I do social media for nonprofits. You know, something like that. And it's not bad advice. In fact, it's pretty good advice because it does make it easier to identify who your target audience is, and and therefore work backwards and find ways to identify them. And so, in fact, in stand out, my book, one of the strategies that I suggest as a possibility is to niche down. However, the caveat here is that that's not a one-size-fits-all strategy because, frankly, for some people, just constitutionally, it doesn't really work. There are some people that that just have a thing that they love and they want to do, and so they can niche down and be happy and comfortable doing it. If you can, God bless. Go do it. That's great. It's very effective. For people like me, I'm kind of a little bit more of a renaissance person, you know, insert parentheses, dilettante. And so I get, I get bored with things, you know, and, and I, I don't want to foreclose possibilities. And so I think there's a lot of people like that. And the idea of niching down was just physically painful for me. I did not want to do it. And so the way that I was actually finally able to find a focus for my business, which now really does kind of center on uh, writing and speaking about things like personal branding and and developing, you know, essentially, you know, finding ways to help professionals break through in the contemporary marketplace. But the way that I ended up doing that was really that it found me. And I say that meaning I blogged very regularly. I wrote a million posts and it turned out that the one that had really the most traction was an early one that I wrote called how to reinvent your personal brand. And that was a piece I wrote for the Harvard business review. It ultimately became popular enough that I was asked to turn it into an expanded magazine piece for the Harvard business review. And then when the magazine piece came out, I was fortunate enough that multiple literary agents actually approached me and said, Hey, have you thought about turning this into a book? And so I might be, uh, interested in a lot of things, but I am not dumb. And when I saw that, I thought, this, this is what it's like when someone actually likes your ideas. I will do more of this. And so I I just doubled down on what was working. So that was how I found my niche. Two things that you just said that I think are, are really important there. Number one is you didn't go niche or we would say niche really quickly, but what you did do is you stuck within the realms where you had credibility. So you didn't jump into a realm where you had zero credibility. You were like, okay, there's a thousand things in this realm where I have credibility. I'm going to explore a lot of them because a lot of them interest me. The other thing that you did is I would call it showing up. You just showed up and you kept writing and you got in there and you got your hands dirty. And I think that there's a myth there that a lot of people would do where they go, well, first I'm going to email some editors. 
I'm going to try and get people to like my idea and then I'll start writing. Where you were like, no, I'm, I'm going to get in, I'm going to write, I'm going to send it off, I'm going to keep going and keep going because eventually, you know, throw spaghetti at the wall, eventually something will stick. It's literally the showing up and the iteration of it that worked. Yeah, it's, it's really true. And I, I, this is a key point that I drive home and stand out, that a lot of people assume that you somehow have to have the idea perfectly formed in your brain and then, and then you execute it. And of course, they end up never executing it because they're like, well, you know, I, I don't have the idea perfectly formed in my brain, so therefore I couldn't possibly. But, but the truth is, that is just a, a misconception. That's not how it works. Maybe one time in a, in a hundred, you might have somebody where, yes, they have this vision and then they, and then they do it. But for literally almost everybody else, I mean, for, for standout, I interviewed 50 plus top thought leaders across a spectrum of different fields for literally almost everybody. It was a process of knowing in a broad sense, what they were interested in. But that's very different than knowing like what your thing is, what your idea is. You know, they knew, okay, well, I care about international development or I care about psychology or marketing or whatever it is. And then they just start doing more stuff with it. And it's only once you're immersed enough in it that you actually have the ability to see where the, the gaps and the lacunae are. You begin to see where you could insert yourself and actually make a contribution. And so it's, it's through doing that you get the idea. That's hugely important, hugely important. My direct experience in working with speakers would be sometimes it took a year. Sometimes, sometimes it was quick, but that was the rarity. It, sometimes it took a year trying different things. Did that one resonate? No. Did that one resonate? No. Okay, let's give it another shot. Let's twist it another way. Can you give me... A few questions, just like a handful of questions that people can ask themselves to start sparking some thinking around, you know, what is my thing? What is my breakthrough idea? One question that I like, just kind of a foundational one, is what are other people in your field overlooking? What are they not talking about that you're kind of like, hmm, why aren't they talking about this? You know, you want to look for the gaps. Uh, Another question that's good to ask yourself is, well, how is my background different than most of the people in my field. And the reason that that's useful is that A, it might give you a kind of different perspective than they have, but B, it also begins to to hint at some areas where you might have unique strengths. So for instance, there's a guy that I profile in Standout named Eric Schott, who's become a hugely influential person in the world of biology. But what made him influential was actually that his initial training was not in biology. It was in math and computer science. And as a result of this training, which was very different than how most biologists were trained, he had the quantitative skills and the ability to see early on in the 1990s that big data was going to be enormously influential in biology. And so he was able to apply his skills and make breakthroughs that other people who were more traditionally reared in the biology discipline just wouldn't have been equipped to do. And so similarly, if you ask yourself, well, how am I different than most of the people? And this could be anything. This could be your approach uh, philosophically. It could be your demographics. It could be, you know, maybe you've shifted from a different industry. All of those things can be places where you might actually end up having a competitive advantage. And I'll I'll actually just mention that if folks would like a free resource, I have this uh, standout self-assessment workbook that's actually 139 questions that walks you through how to develop your own breakthrough idea and spread it. And folks can get it for free at doryclark.com slash join. You are such a case study for, for making a huge contribution and how powerful that is in, in terms of a personal brand. That would be massive for anybody trying to, to work this out. So thank you. I love what you said there around a background, coming about it from a background that hasn't ordinarily been seen. I was talking to a, a, an amazing woman last week called Dr. Bronwyn King. And she is a doctor in lung wards. So she spent her entire career watching people literally die from from lung cancer. And then she found out that her superannuation, which is our forced savings here in Australia, was being invested on her behalf into tobacco companies. So she was literally funding the problem that she was witnessing. And so she went on this one-woman campaign to go to... took years and thousands of meetings, but she's managed to redirect, I think it's $500 billion 
from tobacco companies via financial institutions. So going to financial institutions and getting them to become tobacco-free. And she said the only reason she was able to do that is she wasn't a campaigner, she was a doctor. And she could start the conversation because she was a doctor. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, coming at it from a a different background is often a strength more so than a weakness. That's right. And a a lot of people don't think so. They assume that the stronger position would be to have the same background as everybody else. But if you leverage it properly and if you can sort of explain, no, no, you know, this, this perspective may actually lend something new, then it really can be a competitive advantage. So I wanted to talk about the, the new economy. You mentioned it in your book, the fact that we're entering a new economy and it's changing the work paradigm as we know it. Talk to me about what do you consider the new economy to be? Broadly speaking, I mean, we, we all know, we all have, have seen in a million ways that over the past, let's say, 20-ish years, things have changed pretty dramatically. Largely, that is a function of the internet. Uh, largely, that is a function of technology, which, of course, goes hand in glove with the internet. But essentially, what it means is that, A, we have more competition because the competition is now internet rather than just being local. Even 10 years ago, when I was setting up my business, how did you find a web designer? Well, you found a web designer at the local Chamber of Commerce meeting. And you, you know, paid like, a oh, lot of money for it. That's right. It's like, oh, well, Andy does websites. Let's, let's you know, have him do it. And you had to do it because people were for just starting to get broadband. You couldn't even transmit the files. People would have to be mailing you disks. You weren't going to work with a web designer across the country or in a different part of the world. That would have been ridiculous. You did it with somebody in your town. Now that's just blown up. You can't count on getting business just because like, oh, well, I live near you. And, and that's the same for every industry now. And of course, it, it means it means more opportunity. If you're the web designer in Croatia or whatever, then it's like, boom, you have a world at your disposal. But if you have been the average web designer that uh, that doesn't have differentiated skills and you've just been relying on like, hey, everybody comes to me because I'm the guy in my town, then it's ripe for disruption. So there's a lot of change going on that if we harness it properly, it can be a good thing. If we don't, then you know, watch out. You said that work has shifted. So that the concept of work has shifted towards more independent work from home, which we're definitely seeing. But you take it one step further. You say that the future will we'll sell our skills in a totally different way out of the, the job construct that we're used to. And rather than making money with something, so I offer you my skills in return for money, I offer you my time in return for money, you say that we'll, we'll shift to making money because of something. Can you give me a little bit of background on that idea? One of the most interesting and I would say trickiest aspects of the way that the, the contemporary economy has been shifting, and, and this is this is a concept that I borrowed from uh, Doc Searles, who's a, an internet theorist, is to use his phrase, shifting from making money from something to because of something, and, and I'll parse that. Essentially, it used to be pretty simple, right? That if you if you did something, you would get money for that thing. So most basically, I used to be a journalist. That was how I started my career. I would write an article. People would pay me for the article. Boom. We can all understand that. Now, ironically, I actually spend a lot of my time writing. You know, still, I, I basically perform the duties of a journalist uh, as part of my work. I don't get paid for it. I get paid zero for the blog posts that I contribute to the Harvard Business Review and other publications. And so if you just stopped the story there, that would be a pretty terrible story. <laughs> It'd be like, oh my God. Does not sound good. That, yeah. The thing that you used to like make your living from, you get nothing from. And and like, well, why are you still doing it, you idiot? <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the interesting thing. Some people have just, you know, they've kind of been riding the wave down and it's like, okay, maybe you used to get $500 for the story and then you get $200 and then you get 25 and now you get zero. And if you wave your fist at the sky, it's not going to do any good. However, the reason that I still choose to do these things for free is that I have learned and shifted my business model to monetize because of the, the stories, because of the writing. And so specifically, it is a form of credibility building. It gets my ideas out into the public sphere. And so because I have developed multiple income streams and ways for me to serve clients, I'm able to make 
a lot more money uh, than I ever did as a journalist. And so if I write a piece in, you know, say the Harvard Business Review or, or some other publication, I might get a speaking engagement out of that, which could pay tens of thousands of dollars. I might get a, a, an executive coaching uh, engagement similarly uh, that, that could be quite lucrative, consulting engagements. So if you have those streams of business that you have opened up and created for yourself, it opens up a lot of possibilities, which is why one of the central thesis of Entrepreneurial U is that it's increasingly important for everyone, certainly for entrepreneurs, but also for people who work for companies and are happy doing so, to create multiple income streams for themselves, to have as a backstop and as a way of just having a little something on the side to enable you to harness opportunity. That was actually my next question, which was around, that's fine, you're an entrepreneur and I, I absolutely agree with you as an entrepreneur, you need diversification of income, but you also need to become the thought leader in your space. I mean, that's pretty much the only way you're going to grow your income, the only way you're going to actively attract opportunities rather than chase them. So given entrepreneurs' definite path, I can see that. But going forward 10 years from now, what does it look like to work in your average organisation? How does that impact the way we work within larger constructs, within the IBMs, within the Microsofts? Obviously, it's always hard to predict. But one thing that we can feel reasonably settled on, if we're just extrapolating out from current trends, is that... Um, A, more and more of the workforce is probably going to be freelance. They might even be working close to full time for an organization like, you know, like an IBM or whatever, but they might structurally be a contractor. They might not be a full-time employee there. And so maybe they're 75% time with this one client and then they do some other stuff on the side. And so if that's the case, you want to think like an entrepreneur because you actually are an entrepreneur. If that contract goes away or if you just decide you want bigger and better things, you know, maybe maybe you'd like a contract with a different company or you'd like, oh, hey, I'd like a raise here. Um, how do I make myself worth more of a raise? Then that's something to keep in mind. Uh, but let's pretend that we're talking to somebody 10 years down the road and they have, you know, st still a pretty traditional day job, you know, just, just like we've grown accustomed to. That is all totally cool. If that is, if that is what you're into, that's great. I don't think that's going to go away. I mean, big companies do exist for a reason. The scale is valuable. However, let me tell you a quick story that exemplifies what I'm talking about. One of the people that I profiled in my new book, Entrepreneurial You, is a guy named Pat Flynn. And Pat worked in architecture. And one of the things that he was doing as part of this was there was a big green building exam that he had to pass. It was kind of complicated and hard. So as his way of studying for it, he decided to start blogging about the process of training to pass it. So he created this blog all about you know, passing this exam and just, you know, shared it with the world for free. And so anyway, it worked. He passed the exam. Great. You know, very successful. And a fair number of people had started to, to go to his blog because they found it helpful. So at a certain point, Pat said, you know, this is kind of cool. Maybe someone would like this as a book, you know, instead of like having to read a million blog posts, maybe they'd like it in book format. So he publishes just, you know, his, his blog posts as an ebook, puts it out there and something really interesting happened. The first thing is that because he had been blogging for a while, his search engine results were pretty good. If you were Googling, you know, how to pass this green building exam, his site was coming up pretty high. So a lot of visitors were just organically coming to his site. So the first month that Pat had his ebook for sale, he brought in $7,900. That was twice as much money as he made at the architecture firm, which was really amazing and would be a, a great sideline for almost anybody. But it became especially important for him because later that month, he actually lost his job. It was 2008, and it was the midst of the Great Recession and architecture firms were some of the hardest hit because, of course, during a massive economic downturn, building large-scale new projects is not at the top of anyone's list. And so he realized that this was kind of a saving grace. Otherwise, he was getting ready to get married. He didn't 
know how he would earn a living, but he realized that the ebook showed that there was enough traction with the sideline that he had been doing up to that point for free that he could pursue it and perhaps making a living from it full time. And so that's what he's done since then, since 2008. He has made a full time living on the internet, doing everything from selling ebooks to having a, a podcast and a blog. The moral of the story here is that even if you love your job, even if you would want to stay in your field, which Pat actually probably would have, he really wanted to be in architecture, you never know when things might change or the situation might shift. And so having a side income stream that you are nurturing provides a really healthy backstop, just you know, something in your back pocket that can be helpful for everybody. More so than you'll, you'll never know as well. I think that I'm going to make a bold prediction here, but I think that 10 years down the track, corporations will actually be employing for influence. They will be part of the employment criteria will be, okay, you know, what, what communities can you bring into this organization? How much sway do you have in those communities? You know, how are we able to leverage the influence that you have within this organization? I see this now with a lot of executives that I know who are building their influence out there in the marketplace and being offered incredible opportunities by the companies that they work for as a result of their increased influence. So I think that what you're talking about is it is going to revolutionize not only, you know, how entrepreneurs think, but how people within organizations think and, and the amount of money they get for the role that they do and the opportunities that get given. I think it's going to make a massive difference just across the board. That's my 10-year prediction. We'll, we'll come back in 10 years. I love it. That's, that's great, Julie. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with you. I mean, a lot of times people hesitate to even think about creating side projects or side income streams for themselves because they say, well, you know, I, I just know, you know, my company would be bothered by it or they'd feel threatened by it. But the, the truth is forward thinking bosses recognize that it is a sign of drive and ambition and talent if you have the ability to create something for yourself. One of the, the case studies that I share in Entrepreneurial U early on is about a guy named Lenny Achan, who was a nurse at a hospital. And he actually ultimately worked his way up to being the head of communications for the entire hospital, which is a super non-traditional career path for a nurse. And the way that he got there was that he became really interested in the tech world and in apps. And he decided just on his own time, out of his own interest, that it would be fun to create some apps. And so he, he built two and he put them up for sale in the iTunes store and got them out there just as a, as a side project, just to see if he could do it. And anyway, eventually his boss found out and heard about this and Lenny was worried he would get in trouble, that the boss would, would think that maybe he'd been slacking off on company time or there was some policy that he didn't know about. But the truth was his boss called him in and, and said, Lenny, you know, I hear you've been doing these, these apps. And Lenny said, yes. And the boss said, well, we need to hire someone to run social media for the, for the hospital system. I think it should be you. And so he gave Lenny that opportunity because he had seen that Lenny was self-directed and that he was ambitious enough to, to make it happen. And ultimately, Lenny did such a good job, he was able to take over the entire communications function. But all that happened strictly as a result of the initiative that he showed in creating a side venture. Well, let's, let's get into how. One of the first things you talk about, and I've heard you talk about in various different outlets, is first become a trusted source. And one of the number one things that you talk about in becoming a trusted source is create valuable content. Can you talk about your experiences? You said you had, you would create all this content, you sent it out there into the world, all these editors, and you had repeated brush-offs over and over again. What was that cut-through moment? Firstly, you know, how many people did you email? How many people came back? And then what was that moment where you were like, okay, this has some legs? So you, you really do have to be persistent. That is the key that underlies all of this. But in 2009, I had a realization that I would really need to start blogging and start creating content and putting myself out there. Not because I wanted to. <laughs> not, that, was, that was not the goal. What I really wanted was to publish a book. That had been kind of a bucket list goal for me since I was a kid. And so I tried in 2009 to, to get a book proposal sold, and I just kept failing utterly because all the publishers had the same feedback, which was basically, you are not famous enough. 
And I, I was just like, oh, man, because I, I had it wrong. I thought that you would write a book and then that would make you famous. But no, it's, it's the opposite. You well, have that's to such be a, famous. Yeah, that's such <laughs> a usual – that surprised me when I first came into the industry. I thought the same thing, that, you know, the clouds parted, someone offered you a book deal because they just recognized your talent. You had this book deal and you became famous. And it's the other way around. That's right. you got to so, make yourself famous and then get a yeah, book deal. And the question, of course, is like, how do you make yourself famous? <laughs> exactly. Million dollar question. Presuming you don't want to become a reality TV star, pretty much the, the best option that presented itself to me was uh, was blogging, was content creation. And of course, you, know, you could do similar things, of course, with podcasting or videos or what have you. But it's really about sharing your ideas in a public format. And uh, because I had trained as a print journalist, I was just comfortable writing. So I started trying to blog and it was, it was so ironic to the point that, that we were chatting about earlier about the demonetization of journalism. Here I was a former professional journalist who made my career writing pieces and I was pitching these publications saying, hey, can I write for you for free? And they wouldn't even respond. They wouldn't even return my emails. It was just super demoralizing. With those emails, did you go to them? This is just a question that's been on my mind. Did you go to them with a specific title? It's like, I've got an idea for an article. It's this. Did you go to them with an idea? Like, what was your hook? So in many cases, the editors are not that interested in having you do a one-off piece. They're more interested in having you as a regular contributor. And so if that's the case, then the information that they want is, number one, you know, your bio and whatever sort of credibility you can offer. Number two, clips. So meaning links to past articles that you have written. And so in the early days, this will probably be things that maybe you did for your own blog or for LinkedIn or something like that, but just to show that you can write essentially. And then yes, third, this is not like the, uh, the cornerstone of it, but you, you'd have reviewed their site and kind of see what the flavor is that they cover and say, you know, I'd be interested in doing some pieces focused around, you know, whatever, marketing, networking, blah, blah, blah. You know, a few initial ideas I have include, boom, 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 you know, would you like to talk further and, uh, and send that out and see. So that's, that's kind of a, a good way to introduce yourself for a site like that. I mean, obviously, if you're pitching like an op-ed to a newspaper, then they're far more interested in, in that piece because they traffic in one-offs. But uh, it just varies on the on the source. But so even when I had warm leads, you know, I, I was I was really trying to leave no stone unturned. So I had probably a half dozen people that I reached out to that I knew who wrote for the Huffington Post, for instance. I had you know maybe four or five who wrote for for Inc or Fast Company. You know, I was trying to break in at all these places and was just hitting a lot of roadblocks. But the first one to fall was the Huffington Post. I finally got one person who knew an editor there and was able to get me in. And so that was that was good. That was at least one place that I was able to write for. But, you know, Huffington Post is not known for its business coverage. Like that's, you know, they do that, but it's not really what people go there for. So I wanted to have a more businessy entity that I could write for. And so this is the place where luck kind of comes in. I ended up, I lived in Boston at the time, and I ended up selling my bicycle on Craigslist to someone who worked at the Harvard Business Review. And I was able to, to persuade her. She was not an editor, but she knew the editors. And so I was able to persuade her to introduce me to an editor. And because I had so many pitches and so many like, you know, sample posts and whatever already produced because I had been trying unsuccessfully to pitch like every other you know, journalistic outlet over the past six months, I had lots of stuff to send him. And it actually turned out that this guy liked my stuff and was willing to, uh, to publish me. And so that was how I started my affiliation with HBR. Through selling your bicycle. Yes. I love that. And, you know, before anybody writes that off as, well, that was just, that was just lucky. You know, it's important to emphasize the sheer amount of work that goes into luck. I remember hearing an Olympian say once that success is luck meets preparation. Yeah. Luck by itself, without you having done the work, would, would never have happened. Just talking about preparation, in case there's anybody out there that, that goes, well, I've written three or four articles and I'm just not seeming to get any traction. How many, give me the number, how many articles had you written by the time you started to feel like you were getting 
you know, starting to get some name recognition, starting, people were starting to talk about your ideas? It took between two and three years. Uh, so probably several hundred. Several hundred articles. That's, that's amazing. And you've got this idea. You found someone that likes your idea. To write several hundred articles, you need to be able to break that idea down in so many different ways. And I think also that's where people get stuck. Like, how do I take this idea? And then what, like, what are 300 iterations of this one idea? And one of the things you said in your book that I loved is you said, just start simple. Start simple. You used an example of um, a golf instructor. Many people kind of write off their own expertise because it's, it seems really obvious to them. You know, if you're, if you're a golf pro, it's like, well, duh, of course you hold the golf club like this, <laughs> but you know, for, for everybody else, they don't have the benefit of, of, of having spent a dozen years practicing their golf grip. And so if you can break it down for them in a way that, that makes sense, um, then that is, that is hugely valuable. I, I think we, we often take our skills for granted. And so one of the best starting places for what to write about is just simply what, what do people ask you? about when you meet people at a cocktail party like what are their questions if they hear like oh well you're a leadership consultant oh well do you blah 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 or what do you think about blah 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 and those are the questions obviously that are top of mind for people so that's a good starting place what are your clients doing and and asking you know what are the situations that you see in your day-to-day life whether it's personal or professional that remind you of lessons that you could share you know, I, I really make a point of trying to write things down. I, I capture them. You could do it in a notebook. I do it in my smartphone in the notes function. Um, just if an idea strikes you and that can be fodder for a later post. I, I literally have a note in my iPhone called content. Yes. And whenever somebody says something or you hear a story or you have a thought, I just, not all of it is good. In fact, quite frankly, the vast majority of it is very bad. But it just keeps your brain, it keeps that radar on. And also as a place to start would you suggest just sending an email out to your contacts and just saying, can you give me three questions that you have about what I do? Oh yeah, that's a great way to do it. I mean, also possibly put it on your Facebook wall. That's, I mean, that's how I get a lot of, a lot of ideas. I have started doing a lot of online courses for uh, lynda.com, which is a startup that was purchased by LinkedIn. So they're now in the process of rebranding. Uh, it is LinkedIn learning, but it's a subscription service where people can take these, these online courses. And so I, I do a bunch of them. And so it'll be things like setting goals or how to become more approachable, stuff like that. And so I will literally just do a Facebook post and I'll say, Hey, what are your, what are your questions or what comes to mind? Or what are your best tips about how to become more approachable? And people will just share what's on their mind. They'll say, Oh, I always want wondered, you know, X, Y, Z. And I'm like, oh, great. I'll make, I'll make that a a module. That's perfect. The next part of what you talk about when it comes to, you know, how to get started as a trusted authority, the next one was collaborate, which is a genius strategy that I don't see enough people using. And you use the example of, I think it was Derek Halpern. Yes. Yeah. Who, who, who I know and, and have followed and how he got his start by going out there and collaborating. Can you tell that story? So Derek Halpern is a guy who maybe a decade ago got his start creating a celebrity gossip website. And, you know, he was not incredibly passionate about celebrity gossip. It was just something that he he thought he could get some good traffic on. So he created it and he did. He actually managed to build up the site to be reasonably successful. And, and so he learned a lot in the process about how to attract site visitors, how to get them to convert to sales or email subscriptions, you know, that kind of thing. And so it was a good business, but eventually he just realized it was not what he wanted to be spending his time doing. And so after a few years, he shut it down. But he gained some clarity in the process about what he really wanted to be doing, which was he was far more interested in business and psychology. And he thought, well, can I start a site that would be really popular, but talking about the things that I care about? And so he had one asset, which is that, you know, he knew a lot about how to attract visitors to a site and, uh, and how to get conversions, but he also didn't have any connections or any credibility, to be honest, in the business and psychology space. He just didn't know people there. That was not his world. And so he had a great strategy for immediately creating that for himself. And what he did was he reached out to the leading lights in his industry that he aspired to join. 
and he made them an offer. He said, hey, you know, here's my background. I know a lot about SEO and websites and conversions, and I can help you. I see some things with your website where they're really easy fixes, but if you change them, you can dramatically increase your number of, uh, of email subscribers. Would you be interested in me doing a free 15-minute session with you? And of course, you know, the people said, well, yeah, sure. If, if it can get me more email subscribers, why not? And so Derek was glad to do that for free, but he said, uh, there's one condition. He said, let's record it, because he was doing this over Skype. Uh, let's record it. And if you like it, if you test this out and, you know, let's say a month later or whatever, you, it, it's worked, then I would ask that you post it publicly. Would you be willing to do that? And the people said, hey, sure, of course. You know, they didn't have anything to lose. So Derek did this. And sure enough, you know, his, his techniques were effective. So people posted the videos. Now, what is amazing here is that number one, Derek burst onto the scene and immediately got a huge amount of visibility because these videos were being posted not by him, but by folks who already had a large following. Number two, he was being shown in the company of all of the leading influencers in the field. So by association, it's like, well, who is this guy? He must be somebody. And number three, he wasn't even just a peer. In these videos, they were deferring to him. He was the expert. He was saying, oh, you should do this. You should do that. As a result, he was able very dramatically to, uh, to jump into a poll position with his new field. And he said that he got 10,000 email subscribers as a result of people seeking him out after these videos came out. And that literally to this day, he still gets subscribers as a result of it. The tool there, I mean, it's essentially a list building tool, isn't it? Like you've got you've to have somewhere to send them. You don't want to make the mistake of, of using a strategy that's as genius and effective as that and then you know, all these people who are into your stuff suddenly just go out into the ether. You need to have a website that they can sign up to for more regular, you know, pieces of information from you. You need to, you need to drive them somewhere. Does it need to be a website? Can it be LinkedIn? Is there, are there rules around where to drive people when you're looking at building this list or this tribe around yourself? Well, one of the things that, that I have found to be really helpful is if you're in the early days and you don't, you know, have a website, for instance, some people might say, well, you know, I could, I could send them to LinkedIn, something like that. I mean, yes, you could. And I suppose that's better than nothing. However, what I have recommended for a lot of people, there's a service that I use called lead pages. And, you know, certainly if you, if you have the coding skills, you could do this, you know, yourself, but lead pages makes it very easy if you don't have a technical background. But so if you were to sign up for lead pages, it allows you to create something that is just a landing page. It's like literally a one page website. I'm putting it in air quotes, but it could kind of serve as like a placeholder web page, essentially. Like you could have your picture, like a couple sentences about you and then be like, enter your email here to get my free report on blah, blah, blah. You know, is it, is it better to have a fully fledged website for credibility? Yeah, it is. But if you're just getting started and you don't have that, or you, you just can't deal with it right now, having a landing page that enables people to see something and to get the opt-in is really good. And you had said, pick one thing and stick with it, which again is gold advice. Pick one thing, stick with it, one click call to action, not five, not, you know, come and see me on Facebook. No, no, see me on Insta. No, no, follow me on Twitter. No, 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 no. Just have one, drive everything there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we've talked about how to how to get your idea. We've talked about how to get it out there in the world. We've talked about how to build a tribe around you. The next big step, and this is where a lot of people stop, and that's fine, especially if you're an entrepreneur, but the next step is monetizing your idea so that you can actually earn a living or at least partially, um, you know, chip in with money from your ideas into your lifestyle. And we only ever hear, I find we only ever hear about two polarities. We hear about the people scraping together a living in their parents' spare room blogging. And we hear about the multi-millionaires out there who, who have made money out of their ideas and content and speaking. Or more frequently recently, we hear about the ones that are living in their New York apartment now, but three weeks ago were in their parents' lounge room until they discovered this killer system that has changed, changed their lives. It it is amazing how that works. Isn't it, it is. <laughs> and, you know, in 15, 20 years in the industry, I've seen it, you know, all of none, all of no times, <laughs> zero times. So That's right. how, do you know, how do you know when it's time? 
How do you know when it's time to start charging for your experience? Yeah. So in terms of in terms of charging and uh, and and what to charge, when to charge, all all of these things, it it is a tricky question that a lot of people really struggle to uh, to navigate. I would say certainly in the beginning, recognize that you are going to need to do a chunk of work for free, especially in terms of, uh, of content creation. And the reason that that is so important is that, you know, let's, let's pretend, uh, it's blogging, although again, it could be podcasting or, or video or whatever. It gives people a way to test drive your ideas. That is incredibly essential because if you are new People want to see something to convince them that you are a good choice, that you know what you're doing. And so your free content is a way of showing them that. It's a, it's a window into your approach. That's something that's a really good marketing tool. Also, a, a time when it might be good to do things for free is especially if you can do something early on to get testimonials or to be able to say, you know, I've worked with blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And so for instance, doing it for a charity or some well-known names, that can be helpful because it, it more than pays for itself in uh, credibility. The game is to get as much credibility as you can early on and then leverage that credibility so that you can turn it into premium prices down the road. And there are obviously some typical resistances there to to charging as that initial moment. Someone asks you how much and you go, <laughs> and you know, as, as the buyer, you're obviously very tuned in to that moment. And then you think, okay, well, no, I shall, I shall low bar this and see how I go. But what, what are some of the typical resistances? Yeah. And well, how do you, you get know, over them? People are, are worried that, uh, that, that they'll be called out, you know, oh, that, that, that price is unrealistic or, oh, I've never heard of such a thing or I, I don't think you're worth that. You know, I mean, pe- people are, are nervous and, you know, let's, let's be honest, let's be fair. You may get some blowback that may actually happen, um, not necessarily to your face, but online, sometimes it does. Uh, in, in Stand Out, my previous book, I tell the story about a guy named Ramit Sethi, who's now a well-known online entrepreneur. And he had blogged for three years before he ever charged for anything. And his very first thing that he charged for, you know, big ticket here, he did a $4.95 ebook. And he was he was terrified that people would would react badly. And sure enough, they did. After blogging for three years for free, he got hate mail for having sold his five dollar ebook. And you know, I mean, people can be weirdos online. They can be jerks. And so we do need to steel ourselves for the possibility that yes, somebody might complain. It doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. In fact, you are doing the right thing because guess what? If you never monetize, then you will have to quit. You will have to stop. People can't keep doing something for free forever unless, you know, their last name is Gates. I think that we need to to understand, yes, even if there is some discomfort or some blowback, it's a necessary part of the process. And I think that the the other key thing to keep in mind here is that this is where it's so important to invest in developing a network of people in your field and to really put in the time to to build those relationships because you will be a lot more confident in naming your price if you actually have a realistic understanding of what market rates are and you're not just guessing. And also asking, sending an email out to who you believe your target market, like building that network, sending an email out and going, if I did this and I charged this, would you be interested? Is this something you could be interested in? Like gauging it first. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the people that I profiled in Entrepreneurial U is a guy named Michael Bungay Stanier. Uh, he's a coach based in Toronto. And he had a great quote uh, early in his career. He said he got advice from a friend that told him that his rate should be fear plus 10%. Oh, I, lo- <laughs> I love that. Love that. <laughs> So find the point you're scared to say and then up it by 10%. That's right. And that's that's been so true in in my experience as well. I remember meeting a young green speaker probably about four or five years ago now and he'd done no speaking at all, but he was uber smart, uber research. You knew he was going to do the work. And he sat in my office and I said, okay, so what what do you think your rate should be? And he named this figure that was possibly twice as much as any of the most experienced speakers in my stable were charging at the time. And I remember just looking at him and thinking, 
you're going to get that too. Like the fact, that, <laughs> the fact that you just said that with such certainty tells me a lot about how you're going to treat this and what you're going to do. And he did. He did, and he's extremely successful. And yeah, that fear plus 10%, pick the point you're afraid to say, up it by 10%, but deliver it with certainty. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and one other point that I think is key to mention here is that it's not just that, you know, oh, it would be nice to name a, a premium rate. It, there's actually a danger to naming a rate that is too low because people will think, what is wrong with her? Yeah. And so one of the stories that I tell in the book, uh, Entrepreneurial You, is from, from a friend of mine named Kevin Cruz, who is a speaker himself now, but he spent time as the executive director of a life sciences organization. And one year they were booking a speaker. They knew exactly who they wanted. You know, his board was like, oh, can we get this person? And they, they were worried. They thought, you know, maybe they couldn't uh, because the guy seemed to be very successful, you know, best-selling author, all that. So they had a budget of $30,000 set aside for the keynote speaker for this conference. And they're like, okay, we don't know. We don't know if we can afford him but we'll try. So Kevin reaches out to the guy, sees, you know, says, Hey, are you available? The guy said, yes. Kevin said, well, what's your rate? He said $3,000. Literally he charged 10 times less than they would have paid. And Kevin said that, that that number actually sort of struck fear in their hearts because they thought, Oh no, has this guy like never spoken before? <laughs> like, what is his problem? Is there an issue? We should well, you know do. About? You do. Like having been in that industry, I remember someone saying to me once about a speaker that charged a certain amount. They said, he lives in a bad neighborhood. The speakers that have a fee that low, that's a bad neighborhood to be in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So can you give me some of the various methods of monetizing your ideas? Where would you start? Sure. There's there's a lot of possibilities. Um, people people can definitely think of it as a smorgasbord, right? Because you you can't and shouldn't say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to pick 10 and do all 10. Right. But it's really a question of determining what suits you, what appeals and where do you want to spend some time doubling down? So for instance, a good starting point of course is coaching or consulting because that's something you can do with zero capital, uh, and, and get started. It really helps you get to know your audience in an intimate way. Speaking of course, as we were just talking about is another, uh, terrific way to earn money on the side. There's also ways to monetize content creation. Now, in the beginning, you're going to be doing these things for free. This is like the blogging, the podcasting, the videos. But after you build a following, there are possibilities to monetize, whether through advertising or sponsorships or whatnot. And then there's uh, there's a lot of things that I would consider to be internet-enabled ways to make money. So, for instance, this could be online courses, it could be online communities, it could be ebooks, it could be potentially live events. You know, once you have built up an audience of people that are interested in hearing from you, they often want to get together in person. So you could do workshops, you could have masterminds, whether real, you know, in person or virtual. So it's a world of possibilities. And I think you there's a myth there around ebooks that you, know, you can't make any money out of ebooks but you use an example in your book where somebody had made about two hundred and twenty thousand dollars you know ebooks and courses online courses when done well they can create incredible wealth they can also sit there and do nothing which is where credibility in the work comes in but there are you know there are is good money to be made there yeah, that's exactly right. And it, it really, it depends on just what your strategy is. So for instance, there's a guy named Hugh Howey uh, and a guy named Steve Scott. Um, they are both very well-known uh, authors now. Hugh Howey in particular, his books have, have now been picked up by mainstream publishers, but they started as self-published authors and their secret was really just writing a lot. And they, they said, you know what? These books on Amazon don't cost a lot of money, but I'm going to write a lot of them. Every three weeks he would publish one. So he did 40 and his 40th one uh, was called Habit Stacking. That one, for whatever reason, just sort of struck a chord in the cultural zeitgeist and became extremely popular. And as a result, he was earning $40,000 or more per month. Um, all of his, his backlist got very popular. So y you can succeed with volume. You can also succeed in, in different ways. You know, that's that's the Amazon strategy with eBooks. But if you sell eBooks not on Amazon, if you sell them on your own site and you're able to bring traffic into your site, that's the that's the tricky part. You can sell premium ebooks for a niche audience, 
at much higher prices. It's not uncommon to see a $50, $100 ebook if it's information that your niche audience would consider to be truly valuable. And the key there is to build a system. From my experience, yours may have been different. Rather than selling an idea, you don't. You break it down, you build a system, and you sell that system. The price point on a system is so much higher than the price point on an idea. Yeah, that's exactly right. For instance, if uh, if we're talking about something, you know, let's say like an ebook, like an online course, etc., the question is, well, how how do you keep attracting people to it? How do you get uh, customers to even know about it, to buy it? And so, one example of a of a system that you could put in place is to have on your email list is uh, to have it, an autoresponder sequence where when somebody joins your list, they get a series of introductory messages where they're being introduced to different types of things that you write about. And, and you know, here's the sort of greatest hits, et cetera. And then it can respond to tags. And so if somebody clicks like, oh, I'm really interested in, in productivity articles, then it, it sort of sends them down a specialized sequence where they would later be presented with an option to purchase your productivity course or your productivity book or, or whatever it is. But so you have that sequence built in so that it doesn't require any thinking on your part. You set it up once and then anytime someone's a new email subscriber, they're exposed to it, but it continues to leverage that asset that you've created. And my second to last question, if you had to do it all again in one year, if you had to get from where you were presidential campaign advisor, relatively unknown to where you are now, one of the leading thinkers in the world on personal branding, on breaking through as an executive. How would you do it? Knowing what you know now, how would you do it in, in a year? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure you could really do it in a year, Julie. I, it's, I, it's, a, it's a good goal. I don't know if it's feasible. It, it might not be feasible. It is a really good goal. So I'll give you a modified answer because I mean, I, I, I think that part of what enables success is really just the perseverance of doing things over time. Because, you know, as we were saying before, it took like two or three years of pretty active content creation to start getting inbound inquiries. And it doesn't mean it was it was valueless before that. It, it was not. Um, content creation is valuable from day one in terms of helping you close sales with existing customers or existing prospects. that uh, That's valuable right away. But if we're talking about introducing you to new people, it really does take a while. But if I was going to create a prescription for somebody to get broadly known uh, fast, what I would suggest is this. Uh, and this is actually advice that I did give to someone recently who was operating in a niche. I would say, okay, pick Pick your niche, and and this is this is where it, if if you really are going to do it just in a year, then you don't have time to uh, to futz around and and you know oh I'll try this and I'll try that like you need to be really focused. So let's assume that you kind of know what your niche is. Uh, in this case, the guy that I was talking to was was interested in in fitness and with a very specific demographic. I, I said to him over the course of the next three months, what I want you to do is write one blog post a day picture like doing 90 in three months and you know even better if you can keep it up over the course of the entire year if you can actually have hack it and have the discipline to do 300 blog posts in a year about a topic that is a relatively narrow topic then you are going to start to be dominating search engine results i mean initially uh you're going to be blogging for your own site but you are going to start to get a lot of clips fast. And so you can hopefully, uh, this is something I talk about in Entrepreneurial U, you can ladder up to more and more prestigious publications. And so if we're seeing that, you know, A, you're writing for well-known publications, B, you're writing a lot, your name is out there, um, you're going to be able to to get known pretty fast. You're going to start getting media calls because journalists are going to be Googling and they're going to say, oh, wow, you know, clearly this person is the, the expert here. He's written 300 posts. And so then that leads to extra social proof that the media mentions will probably lead to speaking invitations and you can kind of go from there. But if we were strictly just, just thinking about, well, how do you become uh, a thought leader in a year, that would be the strategy that I would follow. Well, hopefully at some point in the future, I can get you back and we can talk about building a business as a thought leader, because I think that would be a fascinating thing to, to talk to you about. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close it here and I'm going to ask you the question that I usually close with, which is, if I could give you a stage with my magical fairy-like powers and a microphone and put in front of you anybody that you would ever want to influence, what's the one thing that you'd want them to know? 
Uh, so this is where I would put I would put in a, a plug. I I'm not I'm not sure exactly who the right person would be to influence about this. Um, I would if I had this amazing opportunity, I'd probably want to do more research about exactly where the highest leverage was. But if I was going to talk to people and try to influence something, I would say that uh, that one of the things that I'm really passionate about in my personal life is uh, pets. And uh, I'm a I'm a big animal person. I spent a number of years on the advisory board for uh, the Massachusetts SPCA and uh, it's the Society of, for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And uh, so I, I would want to caucus with animal uh, rights and animal welfare leaders to try to figure out who, who would be uh, the person, probably some uh, in, in the U.S., maybe it would be like a Senate committee chair or something like that, where we could accomplish something uh, to really move things forward for animals more broadly. And so if I was hazarding a guess, maybe it would be something about uh, you know, bans on greyhound racing nationwide, or uh, circus animal bans, things like that, or maybe, maybe even better, maybe bans on factory farming. Uh, so those are things that I think would be would be really good to move the needle on. I love that I just gave you an opportunity for influence, and you chose you chose something that's close to your heart as opposed to close to your close to your business. I love that. I love that. Well, Dory Clark, thank you for your time. It's been wonderful. Julie, thank you so much. It's great to, to share all this uh, with you and get to, to talk. And I'll just mention briefly that if folks want to take it one step further and think about how to apply their uh, these ideas about creating multiple revenue streams to their own business, I do have a, a free resource for that. Uh, it's the 88-question entrepreneurial use self-assessment that actually walks people through how to create new income streams in their business. And folks can get that for free at doryclark.com slash entrepreneur. You've just saved me a job. I was actually going to record that as part of your intro, but it's done. Nice. <laughs> Thanks, Dor. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found lots of useful insights and ideas for growing your influence. Thanks, as always, to our producer and the main brain behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. You can find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do by jumping on my website, juliemasters.com, or by following me on Instagram, jules.masters. If you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an interview.